We have two scripture readings this evening, and the first is in Deuteronomy chapter 11, from verse 8 to verse 21, page 190. The people of Israel are being prepared to enter into the promised land. And the Lord says through Moses, Observe therefore all the commands I am giving you today, so that you may have the strength to go in and take over the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, and so that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your forefathers to give to them and their descendants, a land flowing with milk and honey. The land you are entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot as in a vegetable garden. But the land you are crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. It is a land the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. So if you faithfully obey the commands I am giving you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. Be careful, or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain, and the ground will yield no produce, and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates, so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land that the Lord swore to give to your forefathers, as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. The second reading is from 1 Kings, chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. And if you're using a church Bible, it's on page 358. Now Elisha the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Some time later, the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. (coughs) 
Well, last week we started a new sermon series on Elijah. I don't know how much you know about Elijah. I'm sure many of you may know a few stories. The the contest against the uh, prophets of Baal. Maybe other stories where you think, was that Elijah or was that um, the other guy that sounded like him, Elisha? um, Which was which? Wasn't John the Baptist a bit like Elijah? You know, and what was that passage where he appeared with Moses and Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? What was that all about? Well, I guess that showed, if nothing else, that uh, um, if Moses was the representative of the law, Elijah was the representative of the prophets. He was quite an important person in God's plan. I don't know how many of you would know when and where Elijah lived. Maybe useful just to recap on the situation of Israel at this time. And apologies if this is all familiar stuff to you. And uh, if you're doing the Essential 100 course, you'll be coming on to this in a few weeks' time. Day 39, I think it is. But um, we'll just turn back to chapter 11, very briefly, of 1 Kings. And you'll see there Solomon coming to the end of his life. Solomon was the third and the last king of the United Kingdom of Israel. And God declares to the prophet Ahijah that he would tear the kingdom apart because the people had forsaken him. They'd gone and worshipped other gods. You see that in verse 31. But he did say that he would keep the tribe of Judah out of which David came. And so what we end up with is ten tribes in the north under King Jeroboam making up the kingdom of Israel with its capital Samaria. And in the south you have the kingdom of Judah under King Rehoboam. Israel then has a succession of bad kings, and you can read about them in the following chapters, uh, culminating in Ahab, who it says at the end of chapter 16, as we saw last week, did more evil in the eyes of the law than any of those before him. And it's in this northern kingdom of Israel that Elijah appears to Ahab as a prophet. I think the surprising thing about the account of Elijah in this passage in 1 Kings here in chapter 17 is that he just suddenly appears. You know, there's no introduction. There's nothing apart from the fact that he comes from Tishbe in Gilead. Last Sunday morning we had um, Mark Lawrence, the pastor of West Street Baptist Church in Dunstable, come and preach here and it was good to, to interview him beforehand, find out about how he came to faith, his route into ministry, a bit about what he does now with the, the FIC, what his church is doing. Now, had, had we not done that and he simply got him up and we'd said, this is Mark here from Dunstable, I guess most of you would have been thinking, well, who, who is this guy? You know, well, tell us a bit more about him. Now, it's a bit like that with Elijah. Now, we've had the account of the evil king Ahab, his equally evil wife Jezebel, and then in chapter 17, verse 1, it says, now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Boom. Take that. Well, we might not have much here about Elijah, but we do, what we do have are, I guess, the two most important things about him, his name and the one whom he serves. The name Elijah is made up of two parts, El, which I'm sure many of you know, meaning God, and Yah, short for Yahweh, the personal name 
of God, which is often translated in our Bibles as Lord with uh, capital letters. So what Elijah's name really means is Yahweh is God. And in case you're in doubt as to whom he serves uh, with a name like that, he uh, spells it out as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve. Why should anyone serve the Lord, Yahweh? Because he lives, because he is the true God. And we'll see that in different ways in the instance that follow in the, the chapters over the next few weeks. But this evening I'm restricted to the first seven verses of chapter 17. So what do we see in this the short little incident from Elijah's life? Well, the first thing I think we see here is that the Lord withdraws from those who turn away from him. Because what we have here is that one of us is a clash between two humans, between Ahab and Elijah. But more importantly, we have the setting up of a clash between two gods. There's Baal, the one Ahab worships, and you have Yahweh. And what Elijah is saying to Ahab here is, look, you may be king of Israel... But if you're not serving the one true God, if you're encouraging your subjects to worship a false God, then I cannot obey you. I can only serve one God. And that God is going to punish you and your people. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And this is not just an accurate weather forecast, one which I'm sure the Met Office will be quite proud of. This is a declaration of punishment on Israel. It's not even just on King Ahab. It's on the whole of the nation of Israel because they, like Elijah, had a choice to go along with Ahab and Jezebel, worship Baal, or to remain faithful to Yahweh. Punishment of a drought shouldn't be a great surprise to them. After all, we read uh, earlier, just uh, as uh, Ozzy was reading from Deuteronomy, the Lord had promised that if his people loved him and served him with all their heart and soul, then he would send rain. But if they were enticed to turn away and worship other gods, to bow down to them, then the Lord's anger, it said, would burn against them and he would shut the heavens so it wouldn't rain. They were told that these words were so important that they should fix them in their hearts and minds, tie them as symbols on their hands, bind them on their foreheads, teach them to their children. And so there's no excuse for anyone not knowing the Lord's promise of blessing and judgment. But while the drought is the physical punishment for their disobedience here, there's also in many ways a worse punishment and that is the withdrawal of God's word. In first reading, it looks like Elijah's, well, he's just upset the king. He's been pretty direct with him. And he realises, well, we better get out of there quick before he gets killed. But I don't think that's the main point here. Because the prophets were the mouthpieces of God. If God tells his prophet to leave that place, then what he's saying is, I am leaving here. And for him to send Elijah to east of the Jordan is to show that he's withdrawn actually from the promised land. And the withdrawal of God's word is a terrible judgment to receive. 
Let me just read some words from Amos 6. Don't need to turn to it now. But uh, it says in Amos 6, The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Now, there are times when we pray and it feels like God is silent, but quite often he's just expecting us to be patient, to trust in his timing. But there may be other times when he really has turned a deaf ear to us because he's displeased with us, because we've been disobedient, maybe because we haven't trusted in him. So how do we apply this to ourselves? I mean, it's easy, isn't it, to identify ourselves with Elijah and think, well, we're with him. Yeah, I mean, if it happened to us, we would be going and doing what he's doing. But is that the case? Are we actually more likely to do the same as the rest of God's people here, who were enticed into following other gods? You know, we may not be particularly tempted to, to bow down and worship Krishna or um, Buddha. But there are many gods that our society promotes, much more subtle, may not mean making a share of poles as they, they do here, bowing down before them, but the gods of materialism, gods of hedonism, are very real and very attractive. And as Chris was talking about a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at the story of Daniel, it wasn't obvious why Daniel went along with some of the customs of Babylon and not with others. And it appeared to be that because he had decided there was a point where he had to make it clear who was his God, and not to be associated with other gods. And so the question for us is, are we sure in our own mind where those boundaries are for us? Whether crossing over of them may lead us to lose our allegiance to Yahweh and may cause him to withdraw his blessings from us. The warnings in the New Testament in the book of Romans are, are quite clear. There it says, when people exchange the truth of God for a lie, when they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images, when they don't think it's worthwhile to retain their knowledge of God, then it says he gives them over to the sinful desires of their hearts and to a depraved mind. In short, he withdraws his word, his blessing. Well, the second point is that uh, Yahweh is the God of providence, so what about this drought? You know, what a, why does God choose this way of demonstrating his displeasure with his people? We know that's what he decreed in his word and he has to remain faithful to it. There's also something else that's quite pointed about this, isn't there? Because Baal was meant to be a fertility god. He was meant to be the one who controlled the weather. And Yahweh here is saying, look, there is only one God who made the world... There's only one God who continues to sustain the world, and that is me. For Elijah to say that there will be no rain before it actually happens is to demonstrate that this is no coincidence. This is not after the event saying, that must have been God. This is saying, this is what is going to happen. And it did. This is a clear prophecy. But it's also not just in the withholding of rain that God shows his power and his sovereignty here over nature. What about when Elijah does leave the area? He goes to hide 
in the Kereth Ravim. There God ensures that the ravens that he made will bring Elijah food. That in the brook that he created it will be sufficient, there will be sufficient water there for him to drink. I could have just said, well, Elijah just relied on nature. He's, uh, he was an early day Ray Mears, a bit of a survival expert. He knew how to find food and water in the wilderness. But it's quite clear here that behind the natural process of ravens dropping food, the Lord is at work. He says, I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. Now, this does say something about the way God provides. Next week in the story of the uh, widow at Zarephath, we'll be looking at a miracle God performed, where he changed the laws of nature. But here, he works within the laws of nature. After all, ravens are scavenging birds. It's what they do. And so for them to bring bread and meat is not impossible. We don't know exactly what sort of meat that would have been there, of course. Now, the point here, is, as we apply this, is that the, the way in which God generally chooses to provide is according to providence. And that is working within natural processes. There's a tendency, I think, within Christian circles to, to think that well, God's normal way is working through miracles. And if he doesn't perform a miracle, then, well, that couldn't have been God. You know, take the example of, of illness. There's a feeling that if someone is made better by a successful operation, the prescribing of the right drugs, well, that was down to human ability. He was a good surgeon, a good pharmacist, who knew what he was doing. But if, someone is, if someone is made better and there is no medical explanation of how he was made better, well, then that must be God. But to differentiate between the two is to forget that God is in every situation. He's working through providence and he's working through miracles. And I think the reason why he generally acts through providence is, is, is because he wants us to grow in our faith. You know, it's in attributing the small things in life to God that we grow in faith. God wants us to see him in every aspect of life, tending and caring for his people. If we only trusted in him when we witnessed miracles, well that wouldn't require a huge amount of faith, would it? And you see that in the, the big contest that Elijah arranges against Baal, and we'll see that in a couple of weeks. It's not surprising that at the end of that incredible um, miracle, the people fall down and cry, cry, well, Yahweh is God. But for them to accept that the drought was caused by God is a bit harder, isn't it? Maybe it was just freak weather they could be asking themselves. But God does do miracles today, and I'm sure many of you would experience them. But it's often when we are, are lacking in our faith, maybe when we go through a particularly difficult time, when we really need a clear, clear demonstration of God at work for us, that he acts in that way. How often do we give God credit for the small daily mercies we experience that, that other people would put to chance? It's because Elijah here saw God in every aspect of life, that, that when it came to the big things, he was able to trust him. When God said, leave, go to the Kerith Ravine, and I'll make sure you have enough food, he could trust him. And if we want to grow in our faith, and uh, if we are Christians here this evening, I hope that we do want to grow in our faith, we do need to see him at work in the small things, so that we can trust him 
in the big things, when he calls us to make a big sacrifice. Which leads us on to our last point. How did Elijah become so close to God that he was able to trust him in this? What can we learn from Elijah and all this? Because he was clearly an exceptional man. You know, he was used by God to achieve his purposes. He was the representative of the prophets. There would not be many who would have the faith to follow the Lord's command and go and live in the wilderness for three years, living off scraps of food from, from birds. Birds that were considered unclean. If you've been doing the Essential 100 Challenge, it may remind you of the story of Noah, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Every time I read that story, I can't um, fail to be impressed by that incredible faith. You know, how do you build a boat that size, that far from water, fill it with so many animals, with everybody ridiculing you? How do we live up? to these examples. Well, let's just turn to a passage from the New Testament from James 5. If you um, turn to page um, 1216 in your church Bibles. James chapter 5, the end of verse 16. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. The question when we read this is, what does it mean to say Elijah was a man just like us? After all, none of us is going to be a prophet like Elijah, chosen to perform a special task. Well, first of all, Elijah wasn't perfect, as we'll see in a few weeks, when he becomes afraid and runs for his life and sits under a tree and prays that he might die. He's still human like the rest of us. But the passage in James there is about the power of prayer, and it's highlighting the fact that Elijah was still just a man, and yet he achieved an awful lot through prayer. And the funny thing is that the passage in 1 Kings 17 doesn't actually mention the fact that he prayed, does it? It gives the impression that he, he simply, what happened as the Lord decided what would happen, and he just went along with that. But what the New Testament passage helps us appreciate is our role in God's plans. He, he wants us to play an active role. We're not just passive recipients. He wants us to be walking so closely with him that we understand what he wants. We understand what his will is. And we are praying earnestly that that would happen. After all, isn't not the idea behind the Lord's Prayer when we pray, your will be done? We don't simply say, God's will will be done anyway, so I don't really need to pray. God told Elijah what would happen, but he still prayed for it to happen. He prayed earnestly, not just half-heartedly. And you may say, well... Do we really know the will of God? How can we pray for something earnestly that we don't really know what it is? But the most important things about God's will, we do know. They're there in the Bible. We know that the reason that Jesus has not yet come again is because God is a patient God. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. And that means if you truly want to believe, then ask God. And he will give you that faith. 
if we are already believers, it means that we should pray that those we know who are not yet saved would come to repentance. But how quickly do we give up and say, well, so-and-so will never come to faith, they're just not really interested. We know Jesus wants all of his followers to grow in their faith and become mature. And yet, how often do we give up on people? We think, well, they'll never change. They've always been like that. They'll never become more mature, more committed. They're hardly worth praying for. We know that God wants us to be free to worship him and proclaim him openly. And yet, that freedom is being eroded in this country. I don't know whether you've been following the Equality Bill that's... um, been in the news recently, what those in government were saying by putting this bill forward were that churches or religious organisations didn't have the right to decide their own requirements in terms of who they employed. That youth workers and administrators didn't really matter if they had Christian beliefs and values. So well done to all those who uh, signed the petition and wrote to MPs and Lords, all credit to the Pope for wading into the debate as well, and to the FIC for having their um, protest mentioned in the Daily Telegraph. But all credit also to those who prayed earnestly that this bill would fail. Finally, to pray for God's will to be done is also to pray knowing that if that prayer is answered, it may personally mean that our life may become quite tough. Elijah prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain. And as a result, he had to go and live in a ravine for three and a half years. What are you passionate about? What are you crying out to God about? Is there a particular ministry in the church that you're praying for? Are you concerned about people's marriages? Are you concerned about those inquiring about Christianity? Are you concerned about the children and the youth's work, the old people, the sick, or a particular country? To pray earnestly is to pray knowing that God may call you to give up something to go and serve him in that particular area. To pray earnestly for people in need is to pray knowing that God may be prompting you to give generously to that need. If we're not earnestly praying, if we're not prepared to be used by God, then we won't see God's generous provision and we won't grow in our faith.